In 95 AD, Jesus returned to this earth and dictated seven letters to seven churches located in modern-day Turkey. The last two of those letters are studies in contrast. One was written to a spirit-filled church that was on fire for the Lord. The other was addressed to a church that was wallowing in apathy. To see how these letters apply to us today, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. I'm Dave Reagan, the founder and director of Lamb and Lion Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program, Christ in Prophecy. Once again, this week, uh, for the fifth time, I believe it is, fellas, I've got two of my colleagues here in the studio with me, and I have really appreciated the time that they have given to this. One is Dennis Pollack, who is the founder and director of uh, Spirit of Grace Ministries in McKinney, Texas. That's a suburb of Dallas. And the other is my good friend from Amit, Louisiana, Ragin' Cajun, Don McGee, founder and director of Crown and Sickle Ministries. Fellows, I really have appreciated your participation in these five programs. It's really been good. Thank you for inviting us. Okay. Well, this is our fifth program in a series on the seven letters of the seven churches of Revelation. These are letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John when Jesus returned to this earth 65 years after His death, burial, and resurrection. In our first program, we presented an overview of all seven letters, focusing on 13 promises the letters contain for those who are classified as overcomers. And we saw that an overcomer is defined as a person who has placed his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In our second program, we took a look at the Isle of Patmos where the letters were written, and we discussed the first letter, the one to the church in Ephesus, a church that had become legalistic in nature. The third week, we discussed the letters written to the churches at Smyrna, and Pergamum. Smyrna was a church suffering from intense persecution. The church at Pergamum was a liberal church that had embraced various forms of heresy. Last week, we took a look at two more of the letters of Jesus, the ones addressed to the churches at Thyatira and Sardis. The church at Thyatira was a pagan church full of all kinds of cultic practices. The church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but in reality, it was dead. This week, we're going to consider the last two of the seven letters, the ones written to the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea. But before we take a look at these churches, let's pause for a word about a Revelation study resource. The program that you're viewing today is included in this two-DVD album called The Seven Churches of Revelation and presents a fascinating overview of the seven letters which Jesus dictated to seven churches located in what we now call the nation of Turkey. In this video, Dr. Reagan will show you the Isle of Patmos where Jesus appeared to the Apostle John and share photos and videos from archaeological excavations in the cities of the seven churches. You'll be blessed as Dr. Reagan explains how the letters apply to the church and your life today. The album contains a teacher's manual, student study guides, and a slideshow of photographs of the island of Patmos and the seven churches of Revelation. This album is available for a gift of $25 or more. The remains of the ancient city of Philadelphia are located on a high plateau 100 miles due east of Smyrna. Several trade routes merged at this location, and Rome's imperial postal route also went through it, earning it the name of the Gateway to the East. Needless to say, it became an important 
and wealthy trade center. It was also a center for the production of wine. The god of the town was Dionysius, the god of wine. To this day, the major source of employment is the growing of grapes and the production of wine. Almost no ruins of the ancient city still exist. Uh, What can be seen are three pillars of a Byzantine church called the Church of St. John the Theologian. Today, the ruins are overshadowed by a Muslim mosque. The ruins are located right in the center of the modern-day city of Al-Sahir, which has a population of 70,000. The city is literally full of Muslim mosques. While visiting the city, we walked through a colorful market area that was full of goods of all type, and the people we encountered were exceptionally friendly toward us. Dennis, how about reading for us the four verses, uh, first four verses of that letter, okay? Uh, 7 through 10 or yep. 7 through 9? Through 10? You just read, brother. (laughs) (laughs) And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay, hold it right there for a moment. Now, what does Jesus mean in the salutation? The very opening verse there in verse 7, what in the world does he mean there when he refers to himself as the one who has the key of David? The key of David is directly associated with the throne of David and the lineage of David, the dynasty of David. Uh, God said that David David would always have a descendant to sit upon a throne, and we know that the ultimate uh, descendant is Jesus Christ, and that He will possess the throne of His uh, of His uh, son David. Okay, you have anything to add to that? Well, this is another example of a time where where this revelation is is pulling from Old Testament uh, phraseology. Boy, it really because is. in Isaiah twenty two there was a fellow that was in charge of the house of David of the Judean palace. Apparently, I guess he would have been a chief of staff type of guy. And uh, Isaiah says that God is telling him, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm going to replace you with another guy. Uh, Shebna was the first man. Apparently he was wicked. God says, I'm going to replace you with a man named Eliakim. And he says, I'm going to lay on his shoulder the key of David, Mm -hmm. and he'll open and no one uh, will shut. And so these are the exact same words Jesus is using, declaring that he is the ultimate possessor of the key of David. You know, the the point you made is a a wonderful one that I want to remind our viewers of, and that is that uh, you made it in an earlier program, that there is no way to understand the book of Revelation unless you know the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, folks, has more quotations from the Old Testament in it than any other New Testament book. Over 350 quotations and not a single one is identified. And there's never a point where it says, as Jeremiah said, yeah. or Isaiah yeah. said. It just quotes it. And you've got to know the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. I, ha- I have to say, when I first started with Lamb and Lion, I was in the habit of writing and not giving references. And one of the things Dave did as my editor, he would constantly get after me to quote the reference. But I find that I have a very good precedent for not always giving the reference. Yeah, in fact, the writer of Hebrews always says, it says somewhere, and then he quotes, you know, time after time. Yeah, but Jesus is the author of each one of these books, so he does not need to reference himself. Okay, okay, guys, all right. Now, in verse 9, Jesus brings up an issue that we've mentioned previously. It was in the letter to the church at Smyrna. He condemns the congregation of Satan. What what is he talking about there, the congregation of Satan? 
Any any comments about that? Look well, there in verse nine. Right. Yeah. Again, it appears to be a case of uh, of Jews that were yeah. hostile toward Christianity. Now, keep in mind, much of the church were Jewish too. So this was not uh, right. Jews that were persecuting Gentiles, but they were Jew, unbelieving Jews persecuting believing Jews, and he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Uh, it's just not the Jews, though. This was a consortium of Jews, blasphemous Jews, and also pagan Gentiles. The Gentiles were in on the persecution, just like the, well, the sure. uh, yeah. blasphemous Jews were. Now, in verse ten, we come to what is probably the most controversial verse in this letter, and one of the most controversial verses in all these letters. Let's read it. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, many argue that this verse applies only to the church at Philadelphia. Others argue that it's talking about the great tribulation, the tribulation that's going to come upon the whole world, and that it even is an inference that the church would be taken out in the rapture before that tribulation begins. What, what is your feeling about Context. this? Context, context, context. Context requires that the application be to the entire world. Look what he says. It's coming upon the whole world. So if the if the judgment is coming upon the whole world, those who escape has to have a a, a whole world context also. And I believe this refers not just to Philadelphia, of course, but to the entire church that will escape the tribulation. And this is the church that uh, it's talking about this church would uh, would do that. These are the people who are faithful to the Lord. Uh, these are the people. There's no com- condemnation whatsoever in this letter. These are people. In fact, they're, they're commended so highly that he says, I'm going to give you an open door. It's like, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to sh- uh, share the gospel with many other people because you're sharing the pure gospel. Mm-hmm. What about it, uh, Dennis? You got any observations about that verse, verse 10? Well, you know, that verse has always stood out to me, Dave. Even when I was a young believer and knew nothing about any kind of Bible prophecy or the Lord's return or anything. Thing. It just it just stood out as having to do with the idea of the last days, the tribulation, and and the rapture. So to me, it's a, it's a, an amazing verse. Jesus talking about the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole earth, as Don said, the, not not just Israel, not just the Middle East, but the whole earth, and they would be kept from it. So to me, it's a tremendous promise of God's grace and and desire to to keep us Amen. and to take us out before. And it reminds me of that passage over, I believe it's First Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that says that we are to wait for Jesus who is coming to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Wow, I'm ready to be delivered from the wrath that is to come because I know great wrath is coming. Okay, this is one of two letters of these seven that contains no condemnation whatsoever, no criticism. The other one is the one that was addressed to the church at Smyrna that was suffering great persecution. Now, the letter ends with some great promises. Read those for us, Don. 312, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And he who has an ear? To hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Now, uh, any comments about those particular uh, uh, promises? We discussed the 13 promises uh, to some degree in the very first program in this series. But let's let's just go back for a moment. Here is a promise. Number one, we're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. And number two, that we will have written upon us the name of God, the name of God's new city, Jerusalem, and Jesus' new name. That's interesting. Jesus is going to have a new name. And we're going to have new names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's the, the aspect there in my uh, thoughts is that everything old, everything having to do with our earthly lives hey, is gone. Even the earthly life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
and as he gets the new name, for all eternity, so too will we have it. I, I kind of like that idea, because when you say a person's name, you associate it with all kinds of things, his history, his yeah, shortcomings, yeah. or whatever it might have been. Yeah. I don't want any association with that. And Jesus, who had the name Yeshua, which means God's salvation, yeah. is going to have a new name because his role is going to be changed. He's not coming back as God's Savior. He's coming back as God's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's interesting to me that I've got a little note here in my Bible that in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, there is a reference to this that says that the new name of the Messiah at that time will be Yahweh Sidkenu, which in Hebrew means uh, the Lord is our righteousness. Mm-hmm. He's coming to bring peace, righteousness, and justice to this world. And boy, do we need righteousness in this sin-sick world. That's right. What a glorious day that's going to be. you have any observations about these, Dennis, these wonderful promises made here? Well, of course, to me, the, the, the thing that is so exciting is they speak of intimacy and, and the fact that that we belong to God and God belongs to us. There's a song we used to sing in church, I'm my beloved's and he is mine, uh, coming from Song of Solomon. And, and we are here declared to be those belonging to God, those belonging to Christ. His name is on us. God's name is on us. Uh, we, we will have an intimate relationship with him forever and ever. And, you know, one of the things that uh, people once in a while ask is, well, okay, you get to heaven, you know, you, you, you're in, but maybe a million down the, years down the road, you're going to mess up and then you'll just get knocked out of it. But no, we are his forever. His name is in us and on us, and we don't have to worry. Uh, it's a lock-in from here on in. And what you said there reminds me of Revelation 22, where it says that in the eternal state, that God the Father and God the Son will live with us. We will be with them. And it says, we will see the face of God. Yeah. No I can't even picture that. that. I can't, I can't what that means to me is we are going to have intimacy with our Creator. We come next to the church at Laodicea, the church Jesus condemns for being lukewarm. Laodicea is located on a mesa about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was the wealthiest of all the seven cities. It was known for its banks, its manufacture of rare black wool, and its medical school that produced a very effective eye salve. The city was center of the imperial cult as well as for the worship of Asclepius, the god of healing, and Zeus the chief god of all Greek gods. The city also had a fairly large Jewish population. Like Philadelphia, Laodicea was situated on some major trade routes between Rome and the Orient, and it thus served as a commercial center. Previously, there had been almost nothing to see at the site, but it is currently being excavated, and the ancient city is gradually being resurrected from the dust. Here is what its impressive main boulevard looked like. And here you can see the faint outline of the theater carved into the side of a hill. It is currently being restored to its former glory. The city has always had a problem with its water supply. A city close by called Heropolis was famous for its hot mineral springs. An aqueduct was built to bring the water to Laodicea. But by the time the water reached the city, it was neither hot nor cold. Rather, it was lukewarm and filled with impure minerals. It tasted awful. Jesus addressed his most biting and sarcastic letter to the church located in Laodicea. Don, why don't you read the first four verses of that particular letter, beginning in Revelation uh, 3 and verse 14. And and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. 
So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. I mean... Quite that, an indictment. That is uh, sarcasm. That is uh, biting. Uh, that, uh, that must have made a lot of people squirm. What do you guys make of this? Laodicea forgot just how far and how low God had to reach down to get them. That, that was, that's it. They just didn't realize how low they really were. You know, it, it speaks to me of being the reverse of the church in Smyrna. Jesus said about Smyrna, he says, I know you're poor, but the truth is you're rich. And here he says, you say you're rich, but the truth is you're poor. Hey, that is good. So, that is good. That'll so, preach, brother. Well, <laughs> give me a chance. <laughs> wow, that is, that is a great observation. Yeah. But, you know, in, uh, they did a study of American students because Americans are always trying to build their, their kids up in self-esteem. Okay, So they, they test American students and they found they had the highest self-esteem among any of the modern <laughs> countries. But when they found, they took, you know, they thought they were really great students, but when they test them in comparison to various other uh, countries. In specific subjects, yeah. In specific subjects, they did lower than anybody. So they thought they were above everybody, but in truth, they were below almost everybody. So they were sort of ignorant, but they felt good about yeah, themselves. Yeah, and that's what you have here. These people think, hey, we're doing good. We've got a nice sanctuary, and our pastor is so fine and eloquent and articulate, and man, we are so blessed. And Jesus says, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. <laughs> nothing. Look at verse 18. This is, now I'm going to go back to one of my favorite words, a word you all give me a bad, uh, 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 some, uh, some trouble about. Okay. And that's that word enigmatic. Enigmatic. That was yeah. one of Winston Churchill's favorite words, you okay. know. He, he said the Russia was enigmatic. Well, this verse is sometimes considered to be a very enigmatic verse. So let's take a look at it. Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now he's saying, I want you to buy gold refined from fire, buy some white garments, and buy some house eye salve, and you're going to be okay. Does, does this imply we can purchase salvation? It doesn't mean that we purchase salvation. It just means that what we have, he is the source of it, not in and of ourselves. Laodicea felt that they had everything that they needed, not just materialistically, but spiritually also. They didn't need what the Lord had. And the Lord says, you, you're interested in gold and salve and that kind of thing? It has to come from me. Call it what you want to call it. It's got to come from me. Okay. In Isaiah, uh, I think it's 55, uh, God says to Israel, everyone that's thirsty, uh, let him come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's kind of a strange thing. He's saying, you don't have any money, come and buy something from me. But obviously, it's not money that's the currency that's at issue here. Uh, and, uh, you know, every country has its own currency. I remember one time, Dave, me and you and several others were in, I think it was Poland. And Bob Wallace was at a McDonald's, one of our one of Lyman Lines board members. And he, he, they, they said, well, this will be something like 12,000 zelotis. I think that's what it was. <laughs> and Bob's going, wow, 12,000 zelotis. Well, it turned out it was like $3.25 or something. But that was the currency of the country. So it was totally different from our currency. Well, in God's economy, there is a currency, but it's not based on uh, human money. It is a faith look at Christ. There you go. And through faith in Christ, we can receive the blessings of heaven. That's exactly right. And in fact, that reminds me of a verse over in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. Well, when we come to verse 20, we come to one of the most famous pictures to be found of Jesus in all the Scriptures. Let's take a look at it. 
Go ahead, Don. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, now that is a picture of Jesus knocking at the door. We've all seen paintings of this, painting after painting, knocking on the door. And people have always presented this as Jesus knocking on someone's heart in order to get into their heart and become the king of their heart. But that's not the context here. That's okay. I mean, that's a, it's all right. But it's not the context. He's knocking on the door, door of one of, of his churches, churches saying, would that's you right. let me in? Right. This has what nothing to do. Done? That's the whole point of the thing. Uh, William uh, uh, Holman Hunt uh, wrote, uh, painted that very famous picture. And the idea is not that he's searching for the pagan. He's searching for his own people. And also, on the door in the painting, there is no handle. Uh-huh. It has to be opened from the inside. Laodicea, is, um, it parallels a lot of churches today, from the smallest to, to many of the, the mega churches. And there is a sign that could be put over those churches, uh, small and large, that fits Laodicea. And that sign is, uh, is the sign Ichabod. <laughs> the glory has departed. The glory has departed. I have been to churches that so helped me. I am not kidding. Would not let Jesus in the front door. I'm not kidding. They would not do it because there would be a threat to everything they stand for. It's, it's not something just in that day and time. It's something here today. Definitely. Well, the thing that stands out to me is the graciousness of Jesus. I mean, it's like this door is keeping him out. Because they refuse to open. The truth is, he's the one who is holding that door together. I mean, it's very molecules and atoms are being held together by the word of his power. But he, being such a gentleman, he's not going to come in until he is invited, and they're not inviting him. That's right. Okay, fellows, let's uh, finish our consideration of this letter by looking at verse 21, the promise, He who overcomes, I shall grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What throne is Jesus on today? Well, he's not on a th- he's not on his throne. He's at the right hand of the Father on his throne. Yes. Father's throne. Jesus' throne always has been, is and always will be the throne of David, which is in Jerusalem. And that's a very important point. Isn't it? Very important. Very because important. The, the majority of the Christian world today argues that Jesus is on the throne of David right now, reigning in fulfillment of all the promises of the millennium that there will never be any Jesus coming back to this earth and reigning from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But he doesn't say he's on his throne now. He says he's on the Father's throne sitting at his right hand. And one day he is going to come and sit on his throne and let you and me and all the saved sit, have our turn sitting next to him on his throne just as he's sitting next to his Father. Boy, that's exciting. Two distinct thrones here. Would you agree? Yeah, it sounds exciting to me. So you're saying an amen, hallelujah, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, say it. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. The stark reality is that none of the seven churches mentioned in these letters in Revelation continue to exist today. And in fact, this area of the world that became the first mission outpost of Christianity is now 98% Muslim. Jesus warned the churches repeatedly that if they did not remain faithful to him, he would remove their lampstand. It seems to me that this warning has remained valid throughout history since that time. For example, churches throughout England that thrived with revival and evidenced great spiritual power during the 19th century stand empty today, converted into museums or Muslim mosques. In fact, only 7% of the people in England today go to church. 
I personally remember visiting the church in Wales that was the home base of Evan Roberts, who led a great national revival in 1904. It has been beautifully preserved, but it is nothing more than just a museum. The membership of the church today is less than 20 persons. Fellas, what do we got to do to keep a church vibrant and to keep your own Christian life vibrant? Well, Dave, C.S. Lewis wrote, God made us to run on the fuel of himself. Wow, I like that. Yeah, and uh, for a church or for a Christian, our greatest need is God. And there is a way we can have God, and that is through Christ, through faith in Christ, through an abiding walk with Christ and this Spirit-filled life. And that's always the foundational and the most important of, uh, of all aspects of, of, of life in Christ, of, of a church that is uh, filled with the life of Christ. It is knowing Him, walking with Him, experiencing Him, and then out of the outflow of that relationship, He calls you to do things. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Here's my call. Here's my task for you. And He has tasks for church and, and various ministries. And the ministry is very important, and that's why Jesus keeps saying, I know your works, I know your works. But it starts from a relationship relationship with God and abiding in Christ and the Spirit-filled life. Don, you? I, th- I think it's absolutely impossible for a person, an individual, to be effective without daily prayer, daily Bible study, and fellowship with believers. You take any one of those out and you're going to have an emaciated Christian. It's, it's, it's like the physical body. If exactly. you don't feed it daily, if you don't get rest, if you don't do certain things, you're going to get sick. Regarding churches, that's for the individual, but in regard to churches, Dave, I think that, that many churches today are no longer keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is evangelism. That's it. One of the problems with the churches, uh, in fact, the great evangelist George Whitfield one time uh, commented on that, is the fact that you, in too many cases you have unconverted pastors that are, that are behind the pulpit. They've never been born again themselves. Whitfield said, how can dead men beget living children? <laughs> Uh, it's impossible. And uh, some some cases we need the pastors to get converted and, and get filled with Christ and filled with the Spirit. You know, I've met several people in my life who come up to me and said, I, I was an elder, I was a deacon, I was an elder, and I was a Bible study teacher at my church for many years and didn't even know the Lord. That's sad. Oh, look what's coming out of some of our seminaries. Oh, they question the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection. What do you expect? Right. Question everything. Yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, in the average seminary today, they're teaching that this book is man's search for God, not yeah. man's re- God's revelation to man. Totally ludicrous. They've, they've done studies, and they've found that in most of what we would consider fairly liberal churches, it is the pastors that are far more liberal than their congregations. When they do, when they do the surveys, it's like 70% of the congregations believe the Bible to be inspired, believe you know Christ was born of a virgin. The pastors, many of them don't. Oh boy, we, do we know that in teaching Bible <laughs> prophecy, how many pastors have absolutely no interest in it whatsoever, and the average person in that pew is just jumping at the opportunity to hear something about the end times the in Bible prophecy. The church I went to when Crown and Sickle Ministries was established is exactly what you described there. Yeah. Yeah. People and, were soaking it up like a sponge, and he stood there in the back looking at me like I was some kind of alien from out of space. <laughs> and, and, and I need to add this. We're not anti-pastors. I mean, no, I've been a pastor. I love not. pastors, and, and I do well, pastors' we conference. Have. We know that. Yeah. So uh, we're not anti-pastors at all. But there are some uh, that, that really are giving the church a bad name. Well, Phil, our time is all, uh, almost up. And as we bring this series to a close, I want to end the way I began by presenting John Stott's great summary of the seven letters of the seven churches of Revelation to a sinful church he's, Jesus is saying, I know your sin, repent. To a doubtful church, he is saying, I know your doubt, believe. And to a fearful church, he is saying, I know your fear, endure. Repent, believe, and endure. 
That's a very relevant message for the church today. Once again, I want to thank my guests for their help. It is always a joy and a blessing to minister with you guys. Thank you so much for being a part of these five programs, okay? I want to encourage all of you to get better acquainted with these men's ministries. You can find Dennis's ministry, Spirit of Grace, on the internet at spiritofgrace.org. And you can find Don's ministry, Crown and Sickle, on the internet at crownandsickle.com. Thanks for being with us this week. I hope you'll be back with us again next week. And until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Christ and Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 